0: more secure is no one ever than the loved ones of the Savior. I hope you know that to be true, and I hope that you live in that joy today. Our sermon text is Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. If you're able, please rise out of respect for God's word as I read to you. This is the inspired word of God. And he left there, And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Thus ends the inspired word of God, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for your word. We thank you even when it is difficult and challenging, that you give it to us, that we might be shaped according to your will. We pray that you would do that this morning, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you were looking at this passage in your Bible, as opposed to just in your bulletin where we put the sermon text, uh, you probably have at the beginning of it, uh, a chapter heading or a, uh, a paragraph heading. Uh, oftentimes, you know, these aren't inspired or anything. They're just things that editors have put in to help follow what's going on in the passage. You'll see these, these kind of topical paragraph headings. Uh, the one in my Bible, above this one, read teachings about divorce. And it's understandable why somebody would put that as the the paragraph heading here, it seems to be that's what's being talked about here. Uh, But I think to label it as just teaching about divorce is actually to do a disservice to this passage. I think it's kind of not actually getting at what it's about, and actually is kind of missing the very point that Jesus is trying to make. I think the first five verses of this kind of lead us into this, and so kind of This is a weird sermon. Normally I tend to be kind of the three-point sermon, right? And We go about a third of the sermon spent on each of them. Today the, the kind of introduction to the sermon is going to be about the first half. You know, the first five verses are going to just be the introduction. And then I have seven points that we're obviously going to have to go through really fast after that. So anyway, when, when we look at this, starting out in verse 1, it says that he left and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. So he's heading to Jerusalem, we need to remember. Both geographically heading to Jerusalem, but also in what's going on in the story, right? He has is, he is turned from just doing all these miracles to demonstrate his power as the Messiah— to to now showing what it means to be a Messiah, namely to suffer and to die. And so he is on his trek to the cross. And so as he heads toward Jerusalem, we see the crowds gathering around him again. And as was his custom, Mark tells us, he began to teach them. Uh, Jesus is much more than a teacher, we need to remember, of course. He is... The Messiah. He is our Savior. He is God in the flesh. But He is definitely a teacher. And not just any teacher, He is the Word become flesh. He is truth incarnate. And so we must listen to Him. If we are to live wisely, we will hear what He has to say. That's important to remember every Sunday, every time we open our Bible, as a matter of fact, but perhaps even more so on this Sunday where this text deals with something that in our cultural context might be a little bit more controversial in nature. You see, if I'm to be faithful as a preacher, it's not my job to get up here and tell you what you want to hear. Furthermore, it's not my job to get up here and tell you what I think is true. What my job is, is to tell you what Jesus says is true what he believes, what he says, what he teaches. And that's why when I preach, I try to be grounded in the text, not merely coming up with some ideas and telling you I want to talk about these three or four things. And then I go around and find a decontextualized Bible verse here and a decontextualized Bible verse there that support what my thoughts are about the past, about the topic that I'm talking about. Rather, the way I tend to preach is what we might call an expository style of preaching where we look at a text, right? We take part of the Bible. What is Jesus telling us in that part of the Bible? We look at it let the outline arise from the text. And what we're talking about comes from the text. It's, it's really handy in that uh, it kind of makes it a lot easier to come up with things to preach about, right? When you're just looking at the text and what does it say? Okay, don't have to be near as creative, The hard part is when it comes to a controversial or difficult passage, you don't get to just kind of skip past that topic. You have to deal with it too. But that's good because we need to be challenged. We need to have our preconceived notions challenged, shaken, turned upside down on occasion. And we need to be taught by the Lord. Now the Pharisees weren't interested in that. They come, we see in verse 2, up to Jesus, not in order to be taught, but in order to test him. It's not the first time, of course, that they've come to Jesus to tempt him. Back in Mark 8, you'll recall, right, uh, not long after uh, the feeding of the 5,000, and just on the heels of the feeding of the 4,000, they came to him. And we read in verse 11 of Mark 8, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him, And it's reminiscent of Luke 10 as well, right, where the passage where the lawyer, the, the expert in the law stands up and to put him to the test, said, teacher, what shall we do to inherit eternal life? You see, religious leaders, uh, religious experts were trying to trip Jesus up so that, so that they could maintain their control over people. They could maintain their power. They could maintain their control and power over their own lives as opposed to yielding to the control of Jesus. Satan did the same thing, you'll recall, in the, in the wilderness when he tempted Jesus. Right, he, he came to him and he was trying to wrest away the power that was rightly Jesus. And he, he did it through tempting him. That word tempt there is actually the same word here that we see as test, right? In the Greek, they're, they're identical. And so the Pharisees come up, and they, they come up, and in order to test him, ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Not is it awful for a man to, be, to divorce his wife, but is it lawful? Is it in accordance with the law, is what they ask now we need to understand that everyone in first century Israel agreed that there were certain circumstances under which it was lawful to divorce. But what they're saying here is is, is like, is it lawful to do so for any reason? Can, can a husband just decide he wants to divorce his wife? And and they're kind of going back to Deuteronomy 24 when they are coming along this line of questioning. In Deuteronomy 24, it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And it goes on to say that he can write a certificate of divorce and send her on her way. Um, But we need to understand that this, this is not given as a means of of exalting divorce is a good idea rather it's it's actually trying to limit divorce and and it all hinges on this idea of of what does it mean when he says find some indecency in her what what exactly is meant by that there were two main schools of thought there was the school of rabbi shammai rabbi shammai thought that indecency meant sexual infidelity that she had been unfaithful to her husband, and that's what it referred to. That was the more conservative viewpoint, and a lot of people followed that viewpoint. There was another rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, and those who followed him followed what's well, probably a more liberal understanding. Uh, he he thought that, that an indecency could be just about anything, really. Um, literally written out as one of the examples would be if she spoiled his meal, right? If she had Burnt dinner, you know, well, that's an indecency. That's worthy of divorcing her, okay? So these are kind of two ends of the spectrum here. Actually, there were ones on, on an even further end of the spectrum that that thought uh, Ra- Rabbi Akiva, who who taught that an indecency in a wife might be if the husband finds some other woman he thinks is more pretty. Well, then that's good enough, right? So so there was a really wide spectrum of what different people thought, right? And And Jesus is entering into these different cultural ideas about divorce. And he's going to set the record straight. He asks them a question. He says, what did Moses command you? And they answered, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate for divorce and send her away. And and we see here, just like Satan, they're, they're twisting the written word of God so that they can try to trip up the living word of God, right? You catch what they said there? He says, what did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses allowed. Those are two very different things, aren't they, right? Moses commanded one thing and he allowed another thing. Those are not the same thing. They try to switch up the terms and and Jesus says, very rightly, he, he interjects here, it's because of your hardness of heart that he wrote you this commandment, right? He said, so this allowance of Moses is due to your hardness of heart. It's not the the perfect design for marriage. It's not what God wants for your marriage. It's not what he desires for your marriage. In order for that, we need to go back not just to Deuteronomy 24, we need to go back... To the beginning, we need to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Before the fall, the very perfect design of marriage if we want to know what marriage is supposed to be. That's why in our unison scripture reading today, we went to Genesis 2 and looked at that. As Sam said, he's very right. That was very intentional. And we see in light of that that this passage here in Mark 10 is not really so much about divorce as it is about marriage. This morning, I want to point out seven different things that are part of God's perfect design for marriage. There's your introduction, all right? Point one, God's design for marriage is that it's heterosexual. Okay, so we're going to start off right there, bang, with a a cultural bomb, right? In our culture, this is a very controversial place to begin. Uh, But note, I'm not beginning here because I think it's the most important place to start in this or it's the most important point to make in this. I'm not starting here because uh, anything that I think, it's not that it's some hobby horse of mine to be a culture culture warrior or something. I'm starting here because this is where Jesus started. Verse 6, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For most of human history, this actually was not at all a controversial viewpoint, right? For, for most of human history until like five minutes ago, this was just the commonly held viewpoint. Seriously, within all of our lifetimes, this very rapidly changed, right? In, in 2015, for instance, uh, in the case Obergefell versus Hodges, the Supreme Court, Ruled that the right to marry is guaranteed to same-sex couples by both the due process clause and the equal protection clause of the Fourteenth Amendment. This is this is a radical shift culturally. Uh, even even you know President Barack Obama, when he ran for president, uh, you know he's no mind you no conservative cultural icon there. Um, he he actually when he ran for president maintained that you know marriage was to be reserved for ma- a man and a woman. Um, so this is just very recently that this has changed culturally, um, but I'm going to be honest with you, even with the change, I mean, a lot of people in the church are, are up in arms over this. They're like, oh my goodness, the, you know, the whole world is falling apart and everything's terrible because of this. I, I'm going to argue that uh, our primary concern ought not to be with the laws of the land. Our, our primary concern isn't, isn't necessarily to work so that Everybody who's outside the church falls in line with what the church is uh, taught by our Lord and Savior. Our concern primarily should be that we live within the bonds of Christ's commands. That we live according to what he tells us. See, when, when we look at people like Daniel, Jeremiah, right? We see them speaking to exiles who've been carried off into a foreign land where the laws of the land are very different from the laws of God, right? And how do we see them live? And we don't see them constantly writing to, to people and saying, saying, you know what, we need to change all these laws. We need to overthrow this government. We need to make everything in line with God's law. No, we see them living faithfully in the midst of a foreign place. So Daniel, for instance, will accommodate to the king on many different points culturally. Where he won't accommodate, though, is is in his diet, what he eats, or in his worship. Because his Bible told him that there were certain things he wasn't supposed to eat, and so he will not eat the things that the king wants him to eat, even even though the king commands it. He also won't worship other than worshiping the one true and living God, right? Because that's what the Bible tells him. He is faithful in the midst of a foreign land, no matter what the cost. We see Jeremiah instructing the same, Jeremiah 29, right? What does Jeremiah say to the the exiles as he writes them this letter to the exiles? He says to them, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. He says, pray for the place where you've been carried into exile. Isn't that incredible? Think about it. Let's just kind of put it in context. Let's say, just thought experiment, let's say that uh, Canada invades the United States, okay? It invades Michigan, and, and uh, Canada comes and picks up all of us here in Flint and carries us off to Montreal right? Now we're living in Montreal. I know, it's kind of weird, but just just go with me for the example here. So now we have to live in Montreal, and they're speaking French, and, and they have different cuisine, and it's just all kind of weird and everything. And, and what God's saying there is, is, you know, you don't need to overthrow them. You don't need to do everything you can to escape. He's saying pray for them, that things will go well there, right? And that's where we live now. We live in, as exiles, we don't live in, in, as citizens of God's kingdom in a, in a state, in a country, in a culture that is shaped by God's laws. We are exiles. So God tells us to pray for those who are around us, love those around us, be compassionate and caring of those around us, regardless of whether we agree or disagree with them. But concern ourselves with living faithful lives in accordance to his word. And in this context, we see that as we seek to live our lives according to God's word, we need to understand that marriage is intended to be between two who are different from one another, other than one another, not the same. Now, it's often a fair critique that the culture at large has of the church that, you know, all you guys do is, is care about this homosexual homosexuality thing. You know, and you focus on that and and you worry about what the, what that's doing to marriage and you don't focus on other aspects of marriage at all. And, and frankly, that's a fair critique at times. I've seen that within the evangelical culture where, where we lean in so heavily on that, we forget about other things. I mean, but the reality is that it wasn't in 2015 with, with Obergefell versus Hodges, that, that marriage got messed up, right? We culturally have been messing up marriage uh, ever since the Garden of Eden, right? And, and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse, right? And that's happening culturally, broad culture. It happens within the church. We mess up marriage within the church plenty. And that's why it's important that our text today doesn't end in verse 6, it goes on to verse seven, and we see a second point, a second distinctive of God's design for marriage, and that is that it is monogamous, right? Sam made the point before. He brought that to our attention, right? That, that idea that, that God created Eve for Adam. He didn't create any number of wives. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. does not say leave his father and his mother and he'll go take for himself as many wives as he wants or as many wives as he can afford or or a wife here and a wife there and whatever else right now some might argue now now wait Pete isn't polygamy in the Bible and I'd say yes absolutely it is but two points we need to make one is just because it's there doesn't mean it's God's perfect design right that's what we're talking about we're going back before the fall before things got messed up, before we started doing things our own way, to God's design. God's design was that there be one man and one woman, that it would not be polygamous. And secondly, we realized that that as the Bible was written, it was written to people who lived in country cultures where where polygamy was accepted. It was understood in the surrounding cultures that that's, that's kind of the way of the world. That's the way they did it. And even so, in every occasion of the Bible where polygamy is mentioned, it has a negative light shown upon it. It has negative connotations, it has negative connections, negative implications. Things happen. I mean, we think the very first place it happens is in Genesis 4. Lamech, the son of Methuselah, takes for himself two wives, the first person to do that in recorded history. And what we find is the very next thing he does is he proclaims how terrible he is. How vile he is how evil he is and how his anger burns and he kills people and he's he's a terrible person by his own estimation right so that's the very first thing we see he took two wives and he's horrible right we go down through through the annals of biblical history abraham of course plenty of troubles there jacob plenty of troubles there david solomon each case plenty of troubles arise with the multiplication of Of wives. Instead, God's perfect design is that a man would hold fast to his wife, not having a wandering eye, not looking for another. She is to be his all in all. She is the object of his affection. She is the object of his concern. Proverbs 5 puts it this way in verse 18 it says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. The proverb goes on to to say we're to delight in her, be intoxicated by her love, our culture more and more is increasingly turning away from the idea of monogamy. And even where it's upheld, our culture will say, well, it's okay to look, just don't touch, right? It's kind of the the standard that our culture holds to. But Jesus says otherwise in the Sermon on the Mount. He tells us in Matthew 5, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so it is that we are to set apart our spouse in our hearts as our only love, even as we set apart Christ Jesus as Lord. A third distinctive of God's perfect design for marriage. Verse 7 says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. It is disruptive. Marriage is disruptive. It's intended to be disruptive. Disruptive in that the center of your life is changed by marriage, right? If if you are not married, your primary identity is as a child to your parents, perhaps by extension as a brother or a sister to your siblings. But what we see here is that, that when you enter into marriage, all of these other relationships yield, they give way to a new primary relationship, that of spouse, that of husband, that of wife. Indeed, we're, we're still called to honor our father and mother. We're still called to love others, but but they all take a, a back seat to that marital relationship. They, it, it changes things. Things become different. They must become different in your life now. You'll be required to do certain things that, that are going to be done in a different way. You're You and your spouse create a a new home and and there will be things that he or she did that way and you did this way and you have to come to a compromise. There are things that you have to set aside and say, you know what, I'm not going to do them that way. Out of selfless love for the other, I will do them this new way. It is disruptive to your life, right? It doesn't just change your identity from a son or daughter to a husband or wife. It's disruptive to your way of life to the things you do, to the the ways you spend your time. That's why I often call marriage the greatest school of sanctification that there is, right? Because there's opportunity after opportunity, day by day, moment by moment, to have the same mindset of Christ Jesus who willingly set aside what was rightfully his and instead came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that service of others wasn't preconditioned upon them being very nice to him, being loving toward him, being kind and faithful toward him, right? Marriage provides us with an opportunity to do the same. It is disruptive. But it's also, number four, binding. Marriage is binding. Verse eight says, the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. The Sexual union is of course a, a picture of this, is it not? But that's not all that's being talked about here. It's talking about two people being bound together so closely, so intimately, so inseparately that they, that they can't be divided. Remember the, the old crazy glue commercial that they used to have, I think it was back in the early 1980s, and this caught my fascination. I was like 9 or 10 years old, and, and it, just, it just really fascinated me. There was this guy who put this crazy glue on the top of his work hat. He had a hard, hard hat, you know, and, and, and glued it to a steel girder, a steel beam up above, and he sat there and, and held the hat on his head like this and hung from the steel beam up in the, up in the air, right? Because, because he trusted that bond that the crazy glue had made, right? That's all that was holding him there up in the air was that crazy glue and the bond that it had created. The bond of marriage is like that. It is to be so strong, so dependable, so complete that it, it is going to provide you not only with this union that binds you together completely, but also provides you with a safety in that union. A safety and a, a uh, a vulnerability that you're able to, to, to put yourself at ease with. Right? We, we saw in, in, in Genesis 2, right? The very end of that passage, that they were both naked and they were unashamed, right? They were completely vulnerable with one another. And they had no shame. There was no worry, no fear. They held nothing back. They shared every bit of their heart and their soul and their mind and even their bodies. And this is why sexual activity outside of marriage is, is, is cheapening this reality. It, it, it's supposed to be an acting out of this reality of marriage. It is, is why we call it the act of marriage, right? But, but to do so outside of marriage is to cheapen the marriage commitment. Point five. God's design for marriage is that it would be sacred. That it would be Sacred. By that, I mean it is God who does it. It's an act of God. What therefore God has joined together, we read in verse 9. When I I conduct a marriage, I need to remember, the couple getting married needs to remember, that it's not really me who is marrying the couple. It is God who is joining them together. Right? The, The marriage license might say that I am the officiant, but... God says that he is the one who is joining them together, right? Because what is most important to us should be, at least, what God is doing here. He is joining us together. He is binding us together in marriage. He is making it happen. It is his sovereign work to bring us together. And since he is the one who has brought us together, We cannot simply undo it. That's why point six, marriage is permanent. But therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus' whole response to the Pharisees and their their trick question, their their line of, of accusation almost here is to lead up to this point. God's perfect design for those who are married is to forever remain married throughout the rest of their lives. Now, there are exceptions to the rules. Infidelity, yes. Desertion, yes. I would argue physical abuse. But even in those exceptions, two things must be noted. One, though divorce is allowed in those circumstances, it's not mandated. There are times when even those who have endured such things stay together. I've known people who have who have had marital infidelity, but they've stayed together, and God has blessed their marriage, and it has been a wonderful testimony to the gospel. Second thing, even if those couples do divorce, the reality is that divorce always leaves damage in its wake. Sometimes it's the least bad thing to do. Sometimes it's it's just what we have to do in a certain situation, perhaps because the, all the other decisions are worse. But it will leave damage in its wake, right? When you you tear apart those things that have been permanently bound together, it damages them. Think of you know if you took just like some construction paper, you know, and you, you glued some things to it, right, you know, and not just with like Elmer's glue, but with like a crazy glue, right, and then, then you try to tear off the thing that you had put on there, right, it's going to rip the paper underneath, right, it's going to damage it, it's going to cause issues, and that's why we make vows to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for sickness and and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Not as long as it feels right. Not as long as you still make me happy. Not as long as I still feel like I'm in love with you. Not unless you change or I change or circumstances change. Till death do us part. it can cause damage. Now, praise be to God that he is faithful and he is loving and he is graceful and he does not simply leave us in the damage that we have experienced or even the damage that we have caused. He is gracious to us. He restores to you the years the swarming locusts have eaten. And the good news of the gospel is, he does this, even when we are the ones at fault, when we have caused the damage, when we have been the sinful ones, when we have been the ones who have sinned against God and against our spouse. Right? He, he, I, we just all fail so often. I'm not just talking about divorce. Right? I'm not just talking maybe about being unfaithful. Even, even if we're completely faithful to our spouse, not just physically, but, but in our eyes and in our mind and in our heart, but even if that's the case, we still act selfishly. We still still act in ways that are unloving. And this is why it's so important, our seventh distinctive. Marriage is symbolic. It's symbolic. It's a picture namely it's a picture of the gospel right the gospel that says jesus died for our sins that he he loved us even when we were sinners that he he gave himself for us marriage exists in order to show us the love of christ and to show us how we ought to love in response to that love in ephesians 5 paul talks to husbands and wives and he tells them and uh, Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as the Lord. And Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And ultimately in in Ephesians 5.31, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's referring back again to the same passage we looked at here today, Bring us back to Genesis 2, God's perfect design for marriage Then he switches things up. He says something very unexpected in the very next verse. He says, the mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, he's saying that that this whole picture of marriage, of what's going on in there, refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is, is intended to be a picture of Christ and his bride. Right? It's supposed to proclaim the gospel to a watching world. He gave himself completely holding back nothing, to, to, to demonstrating his perfect faithfulness and his love and his mercy and his kindness and his forgiveness. And when his bride, the church, was unfaithful, unloving, unmerciful, unkind, he still loved all the more. Right? So marriages are to be lived in light of what Christ has done. Paying for our sins so that we might be forgiven the debt we owe. Dying for us so that we might live life in him. Loving us so that we might become lovely in his eyes. And you might say to me, Pete, that whole thing is crazy. That's that's crazy talk. And I'd say, you know what? That's kind of what the disciples thought too. Verse 10 says that, When they're in the house, they ask them again about this matter. They're like, Jesus, this all sounds crazy. I I don't get it. Explain this to me because we must be misunderstanding you. Jesus says to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. As we said before, there are limited exceptions. Matthew in his version of this actually specifically mentions infidelity, uh, whereas Mark in his brevity leaves that out. But even so the disciples say yikes in Matthew's version they say if such is the case of man and wife it's better not to marry it upset their cultural driven assumptions it it messed with what they believed to be true but that's what Jesus does that's what Jesus does marriage isn't just what we want to make of it. Ultimately, it is what God says it is. That is a picture of what Jesus does through our relationship with him. One who is other, who is different than us, taking us the church as his bride. To be faithful to her and to her alone. A relationship that was disruptive for him and disruptive for us. A relationship that binds us together so closely, so intimately, that all that is his becomes ours. A relationship not of our own forging, but of God's, and thus a relationship that is permanent for this day and forever. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood, he bought her. And for her life, he died. Amen. Our Lord, our God, may we know these truths from the depths of our being. May we live them out to your glory always. May we be shaped by your love, shaped by your faithfulness, shaped by your holiness. May we be the beautiful bride that you deserve. We ask it for the sake of the bridegroom, even Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. If you're able, please rise now as we sing hymn 404, The Church's One Foundation.